Well, friends, my name is Adam. I'm the senior pastor here at our church. And, and I wonder, are you the type of person that tempers your expectations or do you let them run wild? Do you kind of hype things up in your mind? I'm definitely the second, especially when it comes to Christmas. Uh, I've been determined not to let COVID steal my joy. That kind of goes up and down depending on what day it is. But in our family, we've tried to take some special preparations to, to still have an awesome Christmas this year. Back in November, my family decided that we were gonna just go all out and, and we're gonna have to generate our own joy. So this is a picture of a calendar we made and hung in our kitchen. And we just put stuff down on different days that we were looking forward to. And any particular day we were down, then you could look at the calendar and think, oh, you know what, this is coming up and we're gonna go have an awesome time. So we just decided we're gonna have to drum up our own joy ourselves. We went down to Crown Center to see all the lights. We saw Santa, socially distanced, of course. A little weird, it was kind of a ghost town. I guess that was a good thing, but my kids still had a great time. We also went to Union Station and you can go see this really cool exhibit and then they have this little train, like a holiday train you can ride. Oh, cool, we got four tickets. Well, we only needed two because I'm not gonna get on that thing, right? So I had this, you know, great experience in my, the Polar Express train that I'd ride with my children and, oh, turns out it's for kids. So my two kids each rode it twice, right? This kind of sums up our, our series, Christmas in Real Life, where we sort of have all these expectations around Christmas, we build it up in our minds, and this year, certainly of all years, it's gonna be a lot different than maybe we would have hoped. I look forward to Christmas so much. I love it. it, it and it's, it's, it's the most wonderful time of the year, as the cliche goes, right? But when it's over, and I, hope, I don't think I'm the only one, I kind of experience a post-Christmas slump. Anybody else have the, the post-Christmas slump? It's like a whole nother year, you gotta wait. I, I gotta clear out all the songs on my, on my, iP- uh, my phone, and I, I don't even know what to listen to when I get in the car. I think the saddest day of the year is putting away Christmas decorations. Ah, oh, it's just the worst. When I was in seminary, every year I'd travel to, Jan- uh, in January, I'd travel to Kentucky, to Asbury Seminary for a J-term class, and I'd be there for a week. And my wife, Sarah, was kind enough to wait till I left for school to take down all the Christmas stuff, because I am weak. Am I the only one who feels this way? If anybody, is anybody else having mixed feelings about Christmas? Friends, the good news is that Christmas is the starting line, not the finish line. And that God's glorious mission started with the incarnation. That not, might not be a word we use a lot in, in everyday conversation, uh, but the term incarnation refers to Jesus becoming a person. That's what we've been talking about this entire month. As John chapter one says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. What we see in our scripture today is that the incarnation is only the start of God's rescue mission Christ being born at Christmas is only the beginning of God revealing his glory. John chapter 12 contains some of Jesus' last public teaching, some of his last words that that he would offer for public consumption. Jesus had entered Jerusalem where he would eventually be tried and executed, and tensions are high as his enemies are actively plotting against him. So we'll be in John chapter 12 today. We're going to start with verse 23. So some people are talking with Jesus, and then Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself was the Son of Man. In the Gospels, he uses this phrase 86 times. That's a way for Jesus to refer to himself in the third person. 
It's kind of a title he has for himself. And it has connections with some Old Testament prophecy as well. And he says, the hour has come. So Jesus has been on earth for around three decades at this point. After his birth, we don't hear a whole lot about him. And then even when we do hear about him, several times early on in his ministry, Jesus will do something amazing, and then he'll say, don't tell anybody about that. Keep it a secret. At a wedding, when he turns water into wine, his mother, Mary, was kind of giving him one of these, hey, do something. And then and, and he says to her, woman, in verse uh, four of John chapter two, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So if... For 30 years, his hour had not come. And even after Jesus is out there doing miracles, he says, now's not yet the time. What makes this the hour? What makes this time different? And what was the hour for? So if the hour has come, why is that? And, And what has the hour come for? Two major questions from this one little verse. Immediately prior to this, in in chapter 12, Jesus uh, and his disciples are together, and and Philip, one of his disciples, uh, is talking with a group of Greeks, and and these folks from Greece say, we would like to see Jesus, in verse 21. So Jesus' message has gone international. Jesus is also in his country's capital city of Jerusalem at this time. It's the time of Passover, Passover. Thousands of people would be descending on the city to celebrate the most important Jewish holiday. In addition, uh, it, it would also be all the religious officials gathering in one place. So you can kind of think of Jerusalem at Passover like Times Square on New Year's Eve, right? Just throngs of people descend on it. And so you have a lot of people gathering in Jerusalem and a lot of powerful people gathering in Jerusalem, all in one, in one place, So what had the hour come for? To be glorified, Jesus said. The Greek word here is doxazo, glorified. And it can be defined as praise or to become positively acknowledged, recognized, or esteemed for one's character, nature, or attributes. Jesus is about to reveal exactly who he is for all to see. The hour has come for him to be glorified. People will all acknowledge who he is. Verse 24 says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now we know I got, we got some I ones in our congregation. As good Midwesterners, we're well familiar with wheat. It's, it's the, the most farmland in the world is devoted to wheat crops. As good Midwesterners, we understand this. Each year, approximately 661 tons of wheat are harvested, and about 10% of that gets planted back into the ground. This produces the annual crop next year. So the image that Jesus is using is that a seed must be buried and undergo a transformation, and something new and living is the result. From a small seed dying comes a large harvest. Jesus is referring to the events of the near future that he will be glorified in his death and resurrection. These past four weeks, we focused on the incarnation, and we've been referring to one of my favorite books. Uh, It's by an influential priest uh, written in the fourth century named St. Athanasius. And the book is aptly titled On the Incarnation. So this is a book I try to read every December. It's what we've based our daily devotion on uh, for the month of December. And Athanasius said this, For the word, 
that's Jesus, the Word made flesh, for the Word, realizing that in no other way could the corruption of human beings be undone except simply by dying. Yet being immortal and the Son of the Father of the Word was not able to die. For this reason, he takes to himself a body capable of death in order that it, participating in the Word, who is above all, might be sufficient for death on behalf of all, and through the indwelling word would remain incorruptible, and so the corruption might henceforth cease from all by the grace of the resurrection. That's the first time I've used the word henceforth in a while. I'm going to try and work that in. Uh, Somebody owes me five bucks if I get that in this week in the office. But Jesus gives us this perfect picture, this perfect analogy, that the death of Jesus' mortal body on the cross is, is on behalf of all. It's like a seed being planted in the ground that will produce a great harvest. Because while Jesus' mortal body would die, his eternal nature would not die. And in that way, he would defeat death through the resurrection. Now, how all this works is a mystery. I can't stand here and explain it to you. But can anybody actually explain the miracle of a seed dying in the ground and and becoming a living plant later? And believe me, I was going to try. I looked up like the stamen and all this stuff. But the point is, it's miraculous. Jesus' path to be glorified involves his death. How does that make sense? It doesn't make any sense on paper. And what he says next in verse 25 is similarly counterintuitive. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. What? I don't even want to lose my iPad. Not lose my life while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the contrast here between love and hate is is meant to show two radically different ways to approaching life. Jesus doesn't want you to hate your life. The point is that by comparison, we need to be willing to give up our lives if we really love them. Now, what, what does that mean, Jesus? To love your life is to protect yourself from anything and everything at all costs. I've quoted the great NFL wide receiver T.O. more than once. T.O. famously said, I love me some me. To love your life means to protect your own interests at all costs. When you love yourself above all else, you have no desire to make any sacrifices for anyone or anything else. When you hate your life by comparison, you hold it with an open hand. You're willing to give it away for the sake of others. Obviously in big ways, but also in quiet ways and small ways. Jesus shows us that true life means living beyond ourselves. This is the opposite of a lot of our instincts, just like it's the opposite of what we would think that somehow dying would lead to glory. It doesn't make sense on paper, just like finding your life by losing it. Now we'll return to verse 26 in a moment, but let's look at verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. This is the purpose for which Jesus came to us. God's glorious mission begins with the incarnation. Christmas is only the beginning of the story. And at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus being made like us to teach us and show us God in a form we can understand. Then he would die a death we deserve and defeat death through his resurrection, like a seed giving way to a great harvest. If only we receive part of the story then we'll miss the glory, friends. So I, I like to think of Jesus, the, the, the Jesus mission kind of in four large swaths. 
right? We had his incarnation, his birth. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. But that's only the beginning of the story. Then we have what I would call Jesus' instruction, right? His, his life and his teachings. Then we have his crucifixion, his execution on the cross, and finally his resurrection, the empty tomb. And unless we, we have all four of these, we're gonna be missing the story, right? If we only celebrate the incarnation, then that's just sentimentality. It's just sentimentality. If we only celebrate Jesus' birth, we're just being sentimental. The cute images of a little baby, the manger scene, we sing songs about it, a cute little newborn, right? Mary with all her makeup on still somehow. Okay, like if, we're just, if we just sing songs about a baby being born, it's sentimentality. And Jesus is no different than Buddy the Elf or Frosty the Snowman or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We're just being sentimental. A baby was born, so what? Well, if we accept Jesus' incarnation and we accept his instruction, well, then that's just philosophy. If we like that Jesus was a historical figure who was really born, and we like what he says about loving your neighbors and stuff, and then we stop there, then we've just adapted a philosophy. It's like following Oprah or Mr. Rogers or Tony Robbins or whoever. If we just like some of the stuff Jesus has to say, that loving your neighbor stuff, I like that. Uh, the death and dying and rising again stuff, that's crazy talk. There's a way to accept part of Jesus' message and all you're doing is taking on a philosophy. If we accept the incarnation and Jesus' instruction and we also accept the crucifixion, well, friends, then all we have is tragedy. If we believe Jesus really was born, we like some of what he had to say and that he died on the cross, but we stop there. It's a tragic story. An innocent man was executed. Then Jesus is no different than any other case where someone that was innocent was wrongly convicted. It's a tragedy. If Jesus died and that was it, the Bible tells us, then we are to be pitied most of all people. We gotta have all four. It's only when we have the incarnation and Jesus' instruction and the crucifixion and then the resurrection that we can see God's glory. It's only when we realize the whole story of Jesus' birth, his life and teachings, his death and miraculous resurrection that we see God's, God's glory, that we can understand and praise God for who God is a God who would become like us and give his life for our sake and use an instrument of death, the cross, to bring about new life. This is the glory Jesus spoke of. Jesus' birth began his rescue mission for all people and brought him to the hour of his glorification, that by dying, we would be offered life in his name, and that by rising, we would have a preview of the new life he would make possible. I told you we'd come back to verse 26. Here it is. Jesus said, where I am, my servant will also be. Part of Jesus' glory is that this life is not it. It's not the end. And so part of God's glory is the hope that we have, as the Bible says, that those that have fallen asleep in Christ are not lost. Jesus promises, where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Friends, the promise of Christmas begins in the manger, but ends in the empty tomb. I don't know what kind of expectations you had this year for Christmas. 
I'm guessing there were several things that haven't turned out quite like you've preferred. In our culture, we put a lot of energy into the Christmas experience, and I'll bet you have several excellent reasons to be disappointed. Now, it helps me to remember that not even the first Christmas was ideal. That's been the whole concept of our series this month. As we lean in to celebrating Christmas in real life, I hope you'll remember our great need for God and that God loved us so much that God sent his only son, who was God, to show us what God was like, but that that wasn't the end of the story. Christmas was only the beginning of the end. That Jesus' birth was how God initiated his rescue mission. Friends, the good news is once the candles are all blown out and the gifts all opened and the decorations are all put away, that doesn't mean that hope is done until next year. So keep your head up. You are succeeding just by keeping going. Hear the words of the early church who through their faith still flourished. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Friends, may you know the glory of God, his love shown for you, shown to us at Christmas time. And may we each do our part to glorify God starting today and going on forever. And everybody said, yeah. amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the chance to be in your presence, even virtually, even as we're distributed as a church. God, we acknowledge our great need for you, that we come as sinners in need of your grace. And amidst all our preparations or all our disappointment or all the anticipation we have about the coming days in celebrating Christmas, we pause to consider your glory. That your plans are higher than our plans, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That the way you would solve the problem of sin is by sending your son to die in our place, starting off as a baby, an innocent, vulnerable, helpless infant, and that you showed your greatness in becoming weak. God, we thank you for your, your brilliant display of, of sovereignty as you turned an instrument of death into the occasion for new life through the crucifixion and resurrection. God, this story is so much to take in. We can devote our whole lives to it and still not see all the facets. And so we pause to give you glory, to acknowledge who you are, and to praise you for who you are. God, help Christmas not be kind of the end of hope, but just the beginning as we look toward brighter days ahead in the new year. In all these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.